Hello and welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. This is Adam White, a resident scholar at AEI. and We're taping this on March 19th, 2020, amid the ongoing breakout of the COVID-19 coronavirus. To discuss both current events, but also the broader historic background of American crisis management, we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Tevi Troy. He has a new book out recently titled Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. But perhaps more relevant for today's discussion is his last book. It's titled, Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management in the Oval Office. Now, Tevi is not just a scholar of these things. He's also seen these things up close. He served as Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and before that served in the White House as Deputy Assistant and then Acting Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy. All of that coming after a long line of service on Capitol Hill and elsewhere in government. Tevi, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And I hope all your listeners are staying safe in these difficult times. Agreed 100%. And of course, we're always joined by my colleague, Tal Fortgang. Tal, how are you? I'm doing well from the center of the crisis here in New Rochelle, New York, but we're all safe and healthy. So good to be here. Good to have you here. Tevi, let's start with, with the book, Shall We Wake the President? There's some fairly prophetic passages in there about coronavirus. But before we get to that, let's just talk very generally about the themes of the book. You know, it's funny, I remember interviewing you about that book when it came out just two or three years ago. Even then, I didn't take seriously how precisely relevant the book would become so quickly. But speaking just very generally, how should we think about the White House's historic approaches to crisis management? And what's the basic theme of your book? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Adam, and really fits in not only with our previous interview, but in what you're trying to do in Unprecedental, which is there has definitely been a shift in the perception of what presidents should be doing in times of crisis. As I lay out in the book, In Shower with the President, in the 19th century, in part because of constitutional norms at the time, but also in part because of lack of instantaneous communication and instantaneous travel, you did not have an expectation that the president would be involved in localized disasters. And I tell the story of an earthquake in Missouri when President Madison was in charge, and he didn't find out about this earthquake, which was a pretty massive earthquake for about six weeks. And that's because there was no instant communication. And and if he were to get involved with trying to deal with the earthquake afterwards, what would he send? A wagon train that would take another six weeks to get there. So the president couldn't be involved because he didn't know everything was going on. He couldn't get materials, men and materials, to a place instantaneously or within a few hours. And the Constitution did not anticipate these kinds of emergencies and disasters. It was expected that the governors and the local officials would be handling these things. That has changed over time. And now whenever there's a crisis of any type, certainly the type of disasters I talk about in my book, anything that has some kind of scale, I'm not talking about a pileup on 95, but I'm talking about something that has ripple effects beyond the local area in which it occurs. There is an expectation that the president gets involved and the American people look to the president for answers in times like these. And that is a real constitutional shift. And it's also been a governmental shift and the government has adjusted and enlarged to deal with it. But that has consequences for how we view our government constitutionally and also for our daily freedoms. Now, the shift didn't happen all at once, right? It's a story of the 20th century. What are some of the major milestones along the way? How did we get to where we are from where we were? Rail travel had something to do with it. The development of newspapers that you could get. You know, I remember reading that President Cleveland 
would read multiple newspapers every morning, including some from his home state of Ohio every day. Uh, you weren't able to do that in the early 19th century. You didn't know what was going on in different places. So instantaneous media, mass media was, was a part of it. But also the government did not cover itself glory during the 1918 flu. And I talk about that in Shall We Wake the President, how mm -hmm. Woodrow Wilson was told to try and stop the troop transports that were not only transporting American troops to Europe in World War One, but were transporting the virus among American troops and to the people of Europe. And he didn't do that. So there was a perception the government had done a bad job on certain disasters. And then when President Roosevelt comes in, you've got the twin challenges initially of the Great Depression and then of the World War II. And the government grew to deal with those challenges, both domestic and foreign, national security related. And so at the end of the Roosevelt administration, you suddenly had a much bigger government and an expectation that government would get involved in these sort of things. So is this a story where through the 20th century, the national government was playing catch up with the expectations that were created by new technology and new circumstances? Or was there a point at which the national government response and its preparedness for response sort of jumped out ahead of public expectations? Was the government always playing catch up or did it ever lead on this? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say that the government was playing catch up for a while, but then it started to leave and then it would start to step in. And I, I kind of talk about the series of different crises and how I, I talk about the 1927 Mississippi flood. Yeah. And then you had Calvin Coolidge, who was certainly a small government type and did not want too much government intervention, but he had a cabinet secretary, Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover, who he thought was a complete pain. And he sends Hoover down to the Mississippi area just to get rid of him in part because he, he found him kind of annoying. And Hoover then directs response over there and, and is seen as it's one more feather in Hoover's cap as someone who's seen as a master at handling disasters. He had also helped deal with food shortages in Europe after World War I. Then he helps with the logistics in the Mississippi flood. And then the ironic thing is that he then becomes president when we have our great disaster of the, the Great Depression, and he is seen as unable to handle that disaster. So I think that that's part of it. But then over time, you see presidents get more and more involved. So Coolidge sends a cabinet secretary. In 1969, there is a, another flood, and Nixon sends his vice president, Agnew, down to the, the Gulf area to deal with the, the flood and report back. And then later, you start to see presidents go to disaster areas. And then by the time Katrina happens, remember the great criticism of George W. Bush is that he didn't go. He didn't land the plane in New Orleans, even though there were logistical reasons for not doing so. If Bush had landed the plane in New Orleans, it would have taken away first responders from dealing with the crisis to help dealing with the president's visit, the motorcade, and all the attendant things that happened with the presidential visit. But by that point, you see over this 90-year period, that suddenly there's an expectation that the president goes to a disaster area. And if the president doesn't go, he gets criticized for it. Is it also true that you know over the 20th century, as we have more technology, more communications, more interstate commerce, would it be safe to say that catastrophes that might have previously been localized, they become nationalized almost inherently, either because of contagion diseases moving more, or viruses moving more swiftly because of interstate travel, or is it just because of our, our increasingly internetworked economy gives rise to you know a nationwide financial crisis over what might have been a localized crisis? I mean, in some ways, the government had to play a greater role because things that used to be localized were becoming almost inherently nationalized through their ripple effects. 
Yeah, I mean, part of this is your expertise, Adam, that the, you know, the, the perception of a federalist system where you've got the, the states and localities to handle things and the federal government handles only certain big macro things, that starts to go away over time. The federal government is now involved in micromanaging thing at every level and, and, and to, to the great annoyance of federalists such as, such as yourself and you know, all sorts of small government conservatives. But there is a sense that everything is connected, everything's interconnected, and we do have instantaneous communication, and we do have government field offices, federal government field offices in every state, every region across the country. And there is a perception that when something bad happens, the federal government steps in. In fact, there, there's a great sentence from uh, George W. Bush, which is not something I would have expected a conservative to say, but Bush said, when people hurt, government has got to move. And I don't think that's a constitutional conservative perspective, but that certainly is a 21st century federal government administrator perspective. Now, Tebby, the book is entitled, Shall We Wake the Federal Government? It's titled, Shall We Wake the President? And it focuses on disaster management in the Oval Office. And so this 20th century is not just a story about focusing disaster response in the federal government. It's in focusing it in, in the president and the presidency and the White House in particular, too. Can you say a little bit about that? It's a really good point because, first of all, I'm not sure anybody would buy a book called Shall We Make the Federal Government? It sounds a little boring. Yeah, uh, Shall true. We Make the President makes it a little more exciting. And, and you know, there's one actor at the, at the center of things and it gives you something to focus on. But at the heart of Shall We Make the President is this notion that the, the president is in charge of the federal government, the federal government response. So in a way, it is talking about Shall We Make the Federal Government? It's just not as good a title. But the truth is that the expectation on the president is a major theme of the book. And it has constitutional implications, as we talked about earlier, but it also just has perception implications. If you don't do a good job on responding to a disaster, then it can really hurt your electoral election chances. So election, electoral chances, whether it's for election or re-election. So in 1992, President George H.W. Bush, who really was riding high in 1991 after the first Gulf War, with approval ratings that were unimaginable today in the high 80s. He is seen as doing a poor job in response to Hurricane Andrew. That contributes to his election loss in 92 to Bill Clinton because there's a perception that he's out of touch. He is not in tune with the needs of the people, including people in Florida with Hurricane Andrew. So I think that presidents really need to watch disasters and how they manage them and how they are perceived. And I think that's one of the key lessons of the book, not just that government expectations are growing from the American people, but that presidents really need to manage this. They can maintain their standing, but also, you know, if you're an aspiring politician, if you're an aspiring office holder, you need to show how you would be able to do better in this situation. And that's how you make your case to the American people. Do I remember correctly that in, in the 2007-2008 primaries, so right on the heels of Katrina, maybe even before the financial crisis, wasn't there an, an advertisement? I'm thinking it was Senator Hillary, Hillary Clinton's advertisement in her primary campaign about the 3 a.m. phone call. Oh, yeah. Right. The 3 a.m. phone call is legendary. That's actually what inspired the title of my book. Hillary Clinton shows this phone ringing and says, who do you want answering the phone when the crisis, implying that 40-something-year-old Barack Obama, who did not have a lot of experience in government at the time and had no management experience at all, would be inadequate to handle it. The ironic thing is that Hillary Clinton managed two horrifically run presidential campaigns, and Barack Obama actually did brilliant in managing his two presidential campaigns 
so you know he, he lacked the management experience, but he seemed to do a pretty good job when it came to managing a presidential campaign, which is a complex thing. Hillary Clinton's campaigns, and this gets into my other book that I know we're going to talk about later. Hillary's campaigns were riven by infighting in a way that Obama's campaigns were not. And it, that was by design on the Obama side. He really tried to minimize infighting in his campaign because he'd seen how infighting among Democratic campaigns and Democratic administrations had undone previous efforts. So yes, Hillary tries that campaign tactic with Obama with that, who do you want to answer the phone? But I, I don't think it works for her. And obviously, it, it becomes a kind of legendary image, but it is not a successful campaign. Now, people are sort of reaching for analogs now, right? Comparing this out to the, to the Spanish flu outbreak from a century ago, which obviously the subject matter is similar, but the times are totally different. Or more recent crises, we think of Hurricane Katrina, the financial crisis. As you watch what's happening right now with COVID-19, what are the sort of historic analogs, if any, that you tend to, to, tend to keep in mind? I would say that the two of the ones you mentioned are definitely up there in terms of the 1918 flu and the financial collapse of 2008 or so. And with the difference between today and 1918 is we just know so much more. We know about social distancing. We know how to make it work. We know about track and trace so we can trace where infections started and we can follow the, the people and try and limit them. We have ventilators that do not enough, apparently, but we have, we have ventilators, we have some test kits. So, so we have some things. Unfortunately, one similarity to 1918 is that we don't have countermeasures. We don't have vaccines and we don't have antivirals for coronavirus, which is one of the points I made in the book in, in Shall We the President. So, so that is an issue because so much of our response plans are predicated on having these countermeasures. The whole flu plan that I worked on in the Bush administration that was successfully deployed by the Obama administration in 2009 during the swine flu, during the H1N1 crisis, is predicated on having these stockpiled countermeasures, whether they are antivirals or rapidly deployable vaccines that could go out into the field and help stop and stem the, stem the tide of a disease. If you don't have countermeasures, which we don't have right now for COVID-19, then you really lack a key element of the playbook. Now, I want to focus listeners specifically to, to, to your discussion of coronavirus in this book, Shall We Wake the President? You're not just talking very sort of generally about crises. There are a few passages where you, you say, and I'll quote, one specific area that could stand improvement in terms of disaster preparedness is the development of coronavirus countermeasures. You mentioned that both MERS and SARS will worry, worry some pathogens, et cetera, et cetera. But with coronavirus, we do not have those platforms, the platforms that protect us against the flu and so on. You say that National Institute of Health and others are starting down this path, but there's a lot of work to do. So you particularly, you specifically flag the risk of new novel coronaviruses. And you then walk through some of the things that people can do in their daily lives in terms of personal hygiene and preparedness. But you flagged first and foremost the need for government to get out ahead of this risk. This is just incredible. I, I think that if I remember correctly, Jim Garrity from National Review described this online on Twitter this week as, as prophetic. And I think that's absolutely right. What was it that spurred you to, to, to think about coronavirus and writing that book? Was it your experience at HHS and in, in the White House? Or, or how were you on top of this so far ahead of, of the crisis and years ahead of the crisis? Well, thank you for that. And I think uh, Jim Garrity very kindly called me a bleeping oracle. Uh. <laughs> I'm not sure what, which words he used in the bleeping part. But look, 
what spurred me on in this is that I know and I understand what our disaster plans are predicated on. And the disaster plan is predicated on having a countermeasure. And I saw in Ebola, which ended up not being as big a problem for the U.S., because the problem with Ebola is it's very deadly, but as a result of being so deadly, it doesn't travel as well. If you have Ebola, you're not walking around and infecting others. The problem with coronavirus, and specifically COVID-19, is highly contagious, and you may be asymptomatic. In fact, you or I or Tom may have it right now, but we may be completely asymptomatic, but we are still contagious. We can spread it to others but it still has a high enough death rate to be, to be worrisome at the same time. So I saw the Ebola situation and I said, well, Ebola is a problem. And in 2000, the NIH was talking about trying to develop a vaccine for Ebola and they never got their act together. So I started to think about what other pathogens that are likely to spread and that we've seen spread, do we not have countermeasures for? And, and that's what, what led me to look at coronavirus specifically. Well, so the government obviously didn't take your advice in the last few years and, and really develop these countermeasures. We've seen the government at both the federal level and the states, you know, racing to catch up even just in the last week. And again, we're taping this on, on March 19th, watching the governments try to catch up. What's been your assessment of things so far, just in very general terms, as you've watched the, the COVID-19 outbreak? When did you start sort of keeping an eye on this, on this particular outbreak? And, and what's your sense of the government's performance so far? Yeah, I started keeping an eye when I returned from a trip to Israel in January, and I noticed a large number of people wearing masks on the plane and at the passport control and in the airport, and I had really never seen that before. In Israel or, or when you got back to the U.S.? In the airport in Israel, on the yeah. plane in, coming from the U.S. to Israel, and, and when we landed back at Dulles. Okay. So I'd really never seen masks at that level before. So that's what had me starting to think about it. And it's hard to assess a government's response in real time, in large part because sometimes government makes missteps and then writes itself, and then sometimes the missteps spiral out of control. So I will give you an example, two examples from my time in government that also come up in, in my book, In Shall with the President. In the George W. Bush administration, he gives a speech after the 9 11 attacks from the Oval Office that was so bad that his own speechwriters, who had no lack of ego, his own speechwriters called it the awful office address instead of <laughs> oval office address. Yeah. And people were saying, this guy's floundering, he doesn't have it together. But we now remember Bush's response as his speech to Congress, which was excellent. And he said, we will not tire, we will not falter, we will not fail. And then also, he gave that amazing impromptu performance on top of the fire truck. And people think of Bush's response to 9-11 is strong, and I think that's accurate. But if you had assessed it based on just that first awful office address, then you would not have thought so. So again, real-time assessment is hard. Similarly with Katrina, I think there were some good moments and some bad moments. Overall, the picture is a bad one, specifically of Bush flying over New Orleans and looking down below at the people who were suffering. And that's obviously a terrible image, but it doesn't reflect everything that happened, but that's how history remembers it. It's a famous image of LBJ in a similar situation, right? Yeah, that's actually an image I uncovered for my book, in Shall We Wake the President? And I have these two pictures side by side of Bush looking down at Katrina, and I have LBJ looking down at the 1968 riots in Washington, kind of helplessly from his helicopter. And the conclusion I draw from this is, if you're a president, sometimes there's reasons to go to a disaster area to show support and to rally the troops, which is good. Sometimes there's reasons not to go because you tax local resources at a time when they're needed elsewhere. 
But the number one thing not to do if you're a president is fly over a disaster area because that's never a good luck. Now, so far, I suppose it's a little different in the present crisis because there isn't a disaster area, so to speak, right? The disaster is, is everywhere at all times, or, or it's, it's invisible until it's very visible. But, but the president probably isn't going to walk into a hospital for good reason. The enduring image so far in this crisis is these press conferences, right? President Trump surrounded by Vice President Pence, Dr. Fauci, and the rest of his team, Secretary Azar, all huddled on stage giving these press conferences. Do you think the press conferences so far on, on the whole are, are a positive or, or, or do you think they're, they're counterproductive? It's a really good question because I think it is important to regularly update the American people on what's going on. But I do wonder and worry about the taxing of the resources of those people who have to go up there. Because there's a lot of prep that goes into those conversations. Not only do you have the top people of the government there on stage for an hour and a half, but you also have their people, their aides, who are prepping them. And these are people who should be perhaps dealing with the crisis. So I think it's important to communicate. And I like the transparency, and I like the openness, and I like the regular communication. But I do think maybe they should reconsider whether you have that many people there and whether you have them there for that long. I wanted to ask about the role of administrative agencies that can act decisively and swiftly and sort of in the best way that we expect the executive branch to act. But it's got to be confusing for them to figure out exactly who's responsible for what. So how does that actually work when the executive branch and the administrative state are are confronted with a a crisis that needs a, a swift response? And how does that fit within sort of the constitutional prescription for them? Yeah, it's a really good question, Tal. And one thing you have is that you are supposed to be drilling before the crisis happens. When I was in government, we would have all kinds of tests and drills and exercises to make sure that people knew what they were supposed to do when something bad happened. And they would drill with these crazy situations like a dirty bomb goes off in one place and a disease takes place in another place. The hospitals are overtaxed. What do you do? Those drills are extremely important, and they get you ready for this kind of situation. Unfortunately, once the situation takes place, it's too late to drill. So you you need to know what's going on before the drills take place. And if you're kind of making it up on the fly, that's when really bad things happen. So that's one thing. The second thing, and this is something that I think is of great interest to Adam and your important writings, is you got to look at the breadth of the administrative state and all the regulations that you hear all these suggestions about here's what to do during the crisis. Let's alleviate the burden of Regulation A from FDA or Regulation B from HHS or Regulation C from the Department of Labor. And it kind of makes you wonder, yeah, I understand the need to alleviate the burden of this regulation in this instance, but maybe we should be rethinking some of these regulations writ large. And I think, Adam, this would be a great opportunity for you and all your great writings to talk about this as an opportunity for us to rethink whether we need to have so many regulations that tie our hands when a crisis comes. I think that's right. I think when a lot of these regulations are passed in the first place and they go through what we call cost-benefit analysis and regulatory impact analysis, where the, the regulatory agencies, with, in conjunction with the White House and others, try to think through in advance what are the costs and benefits of a regulation. This is the moment, this unexpected crisis, this black swan event, is one that should cause everybody to go back and think, well, what really are the costs of benefits? It's one thing to try to predict them in advance, you know, the ordinary predictable costs and benefits. But these sorts of events, as Nassim Taleb calls them, the black swan events, they remind us very quickly that our predictive capabilities are frail and that we need to always go back and revisit these things. And so I agree with you. I hope that a lot of these regulations that now are seen as perhaps having impeded 
our preparedness, our ability to respond. Hopefully those will be revisited, maybe not repealed, but at least revisited, reconsidered, reformed. This has to be one of the sort of after effects of this kind of crisis. Right now isn't the moment to do it, right, in real time. But hopefully people are studying this and keeping an eye out for this. I know I will be to see what is the proper response afterwards, not just in terms of regulation, but also in terms of of legislation. We're going to see when this crisis is done, as you and I have discussed before, we're going to see a legislative move akin to Dodd-Frank. Except now, instead of thinking about it in terms of just the financial and economic crisis, it's going to be a a Dodd-Frank, so to speak, for public health in conjunction with financial, economic, and social stability. Hopefully, it won't be like Dodd-Frank, right? But there will be some sort of comprehensive legislative response afterwards. There needs to be. And the question is, what do we learn right now that helps inform that process going forward and also helps inform just the mundane process of rulemaking and regulation in the long run as agencies return to their ordinary ordinary work. Yeah, I've actually got a great idea for an op-ed for you, and it's going to make you have to do it quickly because everybody listening to the podcast can grab the idea as well. <laughs> but you should write something about adding a black swan metric into cost-benefit analysis. So it's not just cost-benefit analysis about what's going on in general times, but in a disaster, what does this regulation do that could impede our response? Adding that metric to cost-benefit analysis can be hugely valuable. That's a great point. Some would say that the precautionary principle is a version of that. In the aftermath of Dodd-Frank, I wrote a, a white paper that I've never really completed for a variety of reasons, but it was on financial yeah. stability, the financial stability part of Dodd-Frank. And I called the paper too big for administrative law because I, I was explaining why this whole notion of too big to fail is basically incompatible with what we presume about administrative law, right? With administrative law, we assume Congress sets some standards, sure, broad standards, but standards nonetheless. The agency implements them to the facts at hand and the courts can review it. Well, when agencies grapple with things like financial stability, there's just no way for Congress to really prescribe meaningful standards up front. And it's very hard for the agency to prepare against them up front because, again, we're trying to protect ourselves against those unknowable threats. And I pointed out in the working paper that this is true of basically at least a small handful of issues, financial stability, pandemics, terrorism preparedness, and climate. And so I I see that it's perfectly fitting that we're now in a crisis of both financial stability and public health, because those two actually have much more in common than we we might otherwise presume. I appreciate you being my temporary assignment editor. Well, let me help you out one more way, because what you're saying really reminds me of our friend and your boss, Yuval Levin's brilliant article and commentary about Congress ceding its authorities to the administrative state and not doing its job in terms of developing what the standards should be for the laws it passes. It kind of passes these laws with, with you know, a nice acronym title, and then it moves on and says, okay, regulators, you handle it from here. And that's not what the role of Congress is supposed to be. We talk about another role. I want to talk a little bit about the role of the press. We talked before just a few moments ago about these press conferences. I agree with you. I get a little worried when I see so many decision makers spending an hour and a half on stage, mostly standing silently until it's their turn to talk. And then you add to that all that extra time that you mentioned, the prep time for the decision makers and for their top aides. It's a huge diversion of resources. I agree we need to have the press conferences. They're important for transparency and, and, and for public information. One of the things that bothers me about these are the press questions that try to pin President Trump down on his responsibility or try to get him to to accept responsibility. 
obviously people can and will disagree about the degree of President Trump's responsibility for the current crisis. I think that he was extremely reckless for the month leading up to, you know, basically the, the month leading up to last week in downplaying this. But this is a point on which people are going to disagree. And there's ultimately going to be a decision in November. What bothers me is that in these press conferences, you have reporters badgering President Trump with questions that they know he isn't going to answer. They're taking up not just his time and their own time, but the time of Dr. Fauci and all these other people. So what do you think is the role of the press, particularly the White House press corps in the middle of this crisis? It's a good question in that the role of what the press thinks it should be and what we may think it should be are different. So you and I probably think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure you're going to agree, the role of the press is to report what's going on, to give us facts, to let us know the situation. The press seems to think, especially these days, that their role is to hold people to account, to hold government to account. And I think that's more of an adversarial role, more of an advocacy role than, than what I think the press should do. Now, I'm not naive. I recognize that that's what the, the press is doing. And in part, that's the reason why the president not only has these press conferences for an hour and a half where he's, I'm sorry about the kid noise. Oh, I, I thought that was the press corps outside. <laughs> it's where you have the, the press corps, because the press corps has this approach, that's why the president feels like he needs to address the American people directly so he can get his message through in an unfiltered way. And at the same time, that has the challenges that we talked about, about using the president's time, the time official of other officials for other purposes than addressing the crisis directly. But you really need to go out there and tell the people what's going on if you don't feel like the press is going to give you a fair shake. Reporting the facts ultimately will hold decision makers accountable. It's just the question of, do you make it confrontational in real time? One other question, you know, in terms of, of accountability and advers- you know, adversaries, President Trump has a political rival out there on the stage right now, right? right? Joe Biden, who's now the de facto Democratic nominee for the president. He has begun to step forward, offering some commentary on what he thinks the president should do. Do you have any thoughts on what's the right way for the president's you know, outright political opponent to calibrate his own approach in this time of crisis? It's really hard to figure this out because if the opponent gets too sharp, then it looks like he's taking advantage of a crisis. At the same time, if an opponent doesn't address the issues and doesn't say, hey, I could do this better, then he's not really doing his job as an opponent. I kind of like the example of Ronald Reagan in many things, but in 1980, when he was running against Jimmy Carter, and this is the time of the Bronx's burning, the Bronx was a complete urban mess, and Reagan didn't do it in a two-pointed way, but he did do a visit to the Bronx to show the urban blight that was taking place under Carter. And he didn't walk around saying, oh, look, this is Jimmy Carter's fault. But he did highlight the fact that this is America's urban landscape in the Carter administration. And so I thought he did that kind of in a, in a safe and ginger way. I also like there's a great story about Ronald Reagan would tell on the campaign trail in 1980 about the dream he had in which Jimmy Carter came to visit him. And Carter would say, Ronnie, why do you want to have my job? And Reagan would say, Jimmy, I don't want your job. I want to be president. <laughs> That's good. He did it in a gentle way and he did it with humor. Joe Biden released a sort of a two or three page memo a couple of days ago with his advice calling what the president should do. I'm actually glad that Joe Biden and his campaign are taking this seriously because they might be the government 12 months from now. But I wonder, wouldn't it be better for him to make these comments behind the scenes? I mean, it's okay to say publicly, I'm, you know, I am offering my views to the president. 
But putting them out in public memos, I suppose it's inevitable in a political campaign, but it does sort of make this an adversarial process where people are going to choose sides over whether they like President Biden, not just next year, but right now. Is there a way that he can offer commentary to the administration in a useful way that doesn't risk being perceived as sort of a partisan attack or actually being a partisan attack? I think you have to do it in a sober, responsible way. I don't think a private memo will work. I mean, I'm reminded of 1932 after Roosevelt wins the election over Hoover. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of too, actually. Hoover reaches out to Roosevelt and asks Roosevelt, what should we do? What's your advice? And Roosevelt tells him nothing. Right. Roosevelt will not even engage with him. Right. And he wants it all to be saddled on Hoover's back until Roosevelt takes charge and then Roosevelt can take credit for the, the turnaround. I think there are both political and logistical reasons why it's just not realistic for Biden to get folded into the government right at this time and kind of give his suggestions. You know, in some democracies, or parliamentary democracy, for example, you can have this kind of unity government where you'll bring people in in a crisis, but it doesn't really work in our system at this point. Yeah, you also have a shadow government in some ways. And, right. and I wonder if we won't see that over the next year, basically, Vice President Biden creating a de facto shadow government, sort of saying, this is the person who I would want to be my secretary of HHS. This is the person I would want to be this or that. And those people are out making statements as well. I mean, we might see that develop just over the summer, if not sooner. I would not be surprised to see that happen. You know, we hear these stories in 2016 that Hillary Clinton had her entire cabinet and her entire senior White House staff picked because she was so convinced she was going to win. I could see the Biden campaign going and getting a sense of it's, it's time to start measuring the drapes and doing that. You never know how an election is going to play out until it actually plays out. And as we said earlier, you don't know how the disaster response is going to play out if we actually manage to skate past this with fewer deaths than expected and the economy recovers. We could look very different in November than we're looking right now. Oh, totally. So let's move on from fights about the White House to fights within the White House. Your most recent book is, uh, is Fight House, The Rivalries That Define the, the, the White House. Could you tell us, I want to connect that book to the current crisis, but first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, Fight House is a book that just came out last month in February, and it looks at the history of infighting in the White House since the development of the White House staff. Before the Roosevelt administration, there really wasn't much of a White House staff. There was a commission in the Roosevelt administration called the Brownlow Commission that had a famous four-word conclusion. It said, the president needs help. After that conclusion, they decided to create a series of administrative aides with a, quote, passion for anonymity. That passion for anonymity, as we all know, kind of went away. But this led to the creation of an executive office of the president and the silos you have in the White House of people who have various roles and responsibilities that you can expect from administration to administration. The press secretary, for example, the development eventually of a national security advisor, now domestic policy advisor. All those roles did not exist previous to the Roosevelt administration and previous to the Brownlow Commission's recommendation. So in Fight House, I look starting with the Truman administration because he was the first president to enter with the White House staff. And I look at some of the fights that develop, especially as a result of having a White House staff that seems like they're responsible for something. And then you also have cabinet secretaries that seem they're responsible for something. The most famous and recurring example is with the national security advisor. You have a national security advisor who thinks he's the chief foreign policy officer, and you have a secretary of state who thinks he's the chief foreign policy advisor. And those people often come into conflict most famously with Henry Kissinger in the Nixon administration against William Rogers, who was the Secretary of State. Kissinger, with a lot of sharp elbowed bureaucratic infighting, eventually wins the fight, and he becomes both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, deposing Rogers, the only person in history 
ever to do that, probably the only person who ever will do that. So White House coverage, every administration from Truman through Obama, and then with a conclusion that talks a little bit about where we're seeing in the Trump administration. So those rivalries always exist, and maybe they're even more prone to exist in times of, of peace when people can afford those, those sort of luxury of intramural warfare. What happens to the fight house in times of crisis? Yeah, well, crisis can be a, a bad time for these fights. I talk in my book about disasters, shall we wake the president? I talk about what happened in the Wilson administration when Wilson's personal doctor was urging to end the troop transports that were taking American soldiers to Europe to fight in World War I. And they were spreading the disease among themselves and also among the people of Europe. The personal doctor urged Wilson to stop those troop transports. But the guy who was the equivalent of the chief of staff of the army at the time said, we could not do that. These troop transports were central to the war effort. The war actually ended up ending one month later. So I'm not sure how central they were. But the chief of staff won the fight and Wilson kind of looked dejected as he was unable to do anything to stem the tide of the disease that killed 675,000 Americans and between 30 and 50 million people worldwide. Yeah, so, so a crisis can either galvanize the team or it can blow it apart, I suppose. Yeah, in terms of galvanizing, that's, that's actually a good point. After Clinton was impeached or after the Monica Lewinsky scandal emerged, you actually saw a fractious Clinton White House kind of come together a little bit because they decided to rally the troops and they circled the wagons in opposition to the Republican effort to impeach Clinton. And what you had there was you had people saying, well, including Ann Lewis, who was a White House aide at the time, said, what, I'm going to side with Newt Gingrich and Henry Hyde? I'm siding with Clinton. Clinton's my team, even though she was disgusted by Clinton's personal behavior. They decided all to come together in that difficult instance. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I think you know this. I was an intern in the in the West Wing during the impeachment trial, uh, and and so I was I was there as they were heading into the trial, and I remember the team was very galvanized. You know, from what you can see as an intern, right? I was just a nineteen year old kid, but the team was very galvanized. But I also was well aware that the, it was galvanized in part because some people had left when things got ugly, right? Rahm Emanuel had left, Erskine Bowles had left, Paul Begala had left, although he came back. And I think there was this, as far as I could tell, again, from my vantage point as a 19-year-old intern right there by the Oval Office, was, was that the team was galvanized in part because they knew that the, that the people who weren't galvanized had left, right? And then from time to time, Rahm Emanuel would actually call because I had a copy of Carvel and Mary Madeline's memoir. Remember that book? Great book. Yeah, it was a great book. And I had, I had the, the copy that they had signed to him was sitting on top of my gigantic computer screen. And Ram was calling both to see about getting the book, but also he wanted to talk to the decision makers. And certain people wouldn't take his calls. Uh, and so he would sort of curse me a blue streak and then move on. But anyway, that's, I digress. Well, let me just say one quick thing about that, because you mentioned Erskine Bowles, who was the, the uh, deputy chief of staff and, and then the later chief of staff. He was so disgusted by the Clinton scandal, he was told he didn't want to hear any more about it. And at one point, he said, I think I'm going to throw up. Yeah. He heard about some of the details. So, yeah. yeah there were people who were, who were not happy with Clinton's behavior, and, and many of them did leave. But the, the staff that was there kind of came together, and you had less infighting in that second Clinton term than you had in the first one. That's right. Well, it'll be interesting to see. And I'm sure many books will be written about what's happening right now inside the Trump White House in terms of, of whether it's being these are centripetal or centrifugal forces. We'll find out. Let's hope it's galvanizing them. Uh, Tavi, one last question. In addition to having a new book out, you had an op-ed out this week in the Wall Street Journal. It was titled A Minion in the Time of Social Distancing. It pertains to your family's observation of the traditional mourning period in, in the aftermath of the 
of the death of your of your mother. And I'm I'm very sorry again. Yeah, my condolences. But would you tell us just a little bit about about this aspect of social distancing? Yeah, that's actually it was it was an awkward moment because I was in a meeting with you and I found out the sad news and I had to uh, leave leave the meeting when that happened. But you know that was 16 days ago and it was a very different time in the world. And the Jewish mourning practices are highly communal. You must bring the, the community together for the funeral and you bring people to your house together for the, the shiva, the seven days of mourning period at the house. And then for a year, you're obligated to go to synagogue and pray in a, a quorum of 10 men to say the Kaddish prayers, the prayer for the dead, that you can only say with that quorum. You can't say it as an individual. And now in this time of social distancing, I'm completely precluded from saying those prayers, which are my sacred obligation to my mother and to other people have their, their obligations to the people that they're mourning. So I write a piece for the journal today in the House of Worship column about my anguish in trying to deal with this situation and trying to deal with the fact that I have mourning obligations, but I cannot fulfill them in what I, what I do in that instance. And I'll just tell you one quick thing. I know as a Catholic, you'll appreciate it. A friend of mine who was Catholic read the piece, and he said when he read about the Jewish mourning obligations, which go on three times a day for a year, he said, goodness, as a Catholic, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, obviously, the, the crisis has had a great effect on the Catholic Church. My diocese, the Diocese of Arlington, has shut down all masses. Which has got to be very hard for you. It is. But of course, so much, so much of this is hard for all of us. I really encourage our listeners to, to read this op-ed. It appeared in the Wall Street Journal today, March 19th. I really, it's a, it's a beautiful reflection. And so read that, read Fight House, read Shall We Wake the President, read anything that Tevi writes now more than ever. Tevi, we're very, very grateful that you could spend this time with us. Thank you very much. And just quick correction, it is March 20th, Friday, March 20th, in which the piece appears. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. Please stay tuned for more episodes and we'll see you next time.